it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks. Welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 222, and we have three great listener questions we're going to answer on the air tonight. Andrew and I will do our usual give and take. I know everybody loves that phrase. So we'll do our little give and take and hopefully answer your questions. So I'll go ahead and read the first one. So I have Dave. I have always thought of dollar cost averaging as buying a stock for less than your initial purchase price. You break down the individual cost overall by buying it as it sinks. But listening to your show, You guys use it as a general monthly investment strategy, regardless of price. Is DCA that simply a consistent approach to investment and not lowering your cost slash share? Great show. Really appreciate what you're all doing. Thank you. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on the great question about dollar cost average? It's going to be a bit of a theme today. It is a theme. So let's define it for the very beginner investor. How would you define dollar cost averaging to somebody? Um, the way I would define it would be making a regular monthly investment at a certain set amount every single month. So if it's a thousand dollars, then every month you're putting a thousand dollars into the market. If it's a hundred dollars, same thing. So that to me is what dollar cost averaging is. What is it to you? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. I guess the second part of that question would be how do you apply it? I know for me personally, I dollar cost average, meaning that I'm building a habit, but it's, I, I kind of see it as separate from, it's not that I'm dollar cost averaging to the same stock every single month. What I'm doing is I'm dollar cost averaging funds into, it's usually a new stock pick every month or a stock pick I've had already, but it's not like I'm buying Microsoft 12 times in a row. Mm-hmm. It's more, I'm looking at what stock do I think is the best value today, next month, what's the stock that I find is the next value today. And then that's kind of how I approach it. So what are your thoughts on dollar cost averaging up as well as down? Yeah, that's tricky. I mean, obviously you want the dollar cost average down when you can. Like what's kind of implied in the question, it reduces your cost basis. And I know you've talked about that several times on the show before. Mm-hmm. If I buy a stock at 10 and then I buy it and it, after it drops to five, my cost basis, how much I actually spent is 
half of that. It's at seven and a half. It's the average of the 10 and the five. So dollar cost average on the way down is great because you're being able to basically buy low. You're able to buy more shares as it goes down. On the way up though, you kind of take that and you flip it. So it's like, well, am I, am I buying high because I'm buying on the way up? And I would say sometimes that's the case, but sometimes it's not. I mean, think of a great company over the last five, 10 years. These companies aren't just staying static. They're growing in size. They're hiring more employees. They're raising their revenues and their profits. And so just because the stock's gone up 20% in the past six months, well, what if the business has grown that much too? You're not really buying on the way up, even though it might feel that way. You're buying a more valuable business because the business itself has grown. And so I don't think there's a right answer for buying up or buying down. You kind of have to look and say, what's the value today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really the kicker is what's the value today? And trying to anticipate or, I guess, analyze the company enough that you understand kind of where the business is. And if you look at the market as a whole, the way it's functioning right now, it's kind of wild, but there's lots of downward movement and there has been for a little while now. And so it would give you an opportunity, depending on what sector you're looking at investing in, to dollar cost down. For example, there are companies that I have bought. Perfect example is PayPal. PayPal is a company I'm long, but it's gone down a lot since I initially bought it. And so I've been buying pieces of it as it's gone down and that helps reduce my cost basis so that hopefully in the future, when the company rebounds, that I will make more money in the long run. And that's really one of the, I guess, the hallmarks of value investing is trying to take advantage when there's fear in the market. And that would be for a company like PayPal, I'm not talking about overall market per se, but a company like PayPal, there's lots of fear about the company and how well it's going to do and whatnot. But it kind of goes back to understanding the disconnect sometimes between what the market is telling you, what Mr. Market, our friend that presents a different price to you every single day, he's presenting the idea that the company is not doing well. But when you look at the overall fundamentals of the company and you see that all those things that maybe induced you to buy in the first place are still doing great. And so that would give you an incentive to go, okay, well now it's selling for cheaper. It's kind of like buying socks at Target. Well, you know, I really want these, but now they're on sale for five dollars less. Well, yeah, I'm gonna buy them for sure. So it's kind of the same idea with the stock market. And dollar cost averaging, it allows you to buy companies, good investments for you at different times at a lower price. But I think the idea of dollar cost averaging to me was first initiated when I started investing in a 401k when I worked for Wells Fargo, because there every month they were taking a portion of my paycheck and putting it into the 401k. And in essence, what they're doing was they're taking that money, whatever the dollar amount was, I don't recall what it was exactly, but they were spreading that out among the different investments that were in my 401k that I had already allocated money to. And so every month they were just adding more and more money to those allocations. And that's really most people when they dollar cost average, that's really what you're doing. Whether the market's going up or down, you're continuing to buy into you know those shares of whatever it is that you're investing in, in your 401k. And the same idea that Andrew was talking about, that's what we're doing with individual stocks. So it all kind of operates on the same idea is that 
consistently putting money into the market and making it work for you. If I can just try to simplify what I was saying earlier, and I think you kind of did a great job of that already. But in my mind, dollar cost averaging is not necessarily about lowering your cost basis. Sometimes that does happen, but it's more about the habit. And so over a long period of time, you're going to buy more, you're going to buy less sometimes. But over the long term, on average, it's going to be a lot better than you driving yourself crazy trying to time stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I think the key point to dollar cost averaging is it creates a habit. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past, budgeting and some of those things. The biggest issue with people getting started in investing is they think they have to start with big sums of money. You know, I got to have $10,000 to start investing in the market. You don't. And especially now with all these brokerages offering partial shares and being able to open accounts with no balances, you could start with as little as five or $10. The bigger issue is you know, that idea of paying yourself first. I know that that's kind of a tired phrase a bit, but it's really true. And if you don't do that, then you'll never start the habit and you'll wait for $10,000 to magically appear. And if you don't, then you won't get started. And time in the market is way more important than timing the market. And so if, if Andrew and I can encourage you anything today, it's to start investing now. Don't wait, open an account, buy one thing, whatever it is, just buy one thing and then start consistently putting that money in there, whatever it is. If it's, if you can only afford 20 bucks, then put 20 bucks in there. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not a race. It's not a game and it's not to see who's got the biggest account faster. It's about developing a habit. And that's what dollar cost averaging allows you to do is develop a habit of investing, just like paying your phone bill or anything else. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances.
Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. That's a great way to put it, Dave. Very well said. Thanks. All right. Let's move on to the next question. So like I said, this is going to be a bit of a theme here. So we have, hi, all. I have an easy question. I am 50 and fully diversified in my portfolio of around 20 stocks and invest $1,000 per month. My question is, once diversified, how do you pick which stocks to add money to? Do you just go down your list every month and put $1,000 into each business, or do you have another formula, i.e. buy into the stocks that are down or look at 52-week low slash high? I am an avid listener and e-letter subscriber and Value Trap indicator purchaser, and I love what you guys do. Thanks in advance, Brett. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Brett? Really good question. It's kind of a continuation of what we were just talking about. Yeah, it is. It's, it is a great question and something that, you know, if you're not there on your journey yet, you will be one day because as you're building a portfolio that becomes diversified, you eventually run out of space. So you do got to figure out what to do with the money itself. For me, I am always looking at what's my best opportunity in front of me. So sometimes I'm adding to stocks that I already have, sometimes I'm buying new stocks. And I know in the past on the podcast, we've talked about 15 to 20 stocks being a good general rule for a portfolio. That is a good general rule and a good general framework. But I think it's one of those things that's so commonly accepted that people kind of don't think twice about it. And it should be reconsidered. And I don't know if I want to get into all the nitty gritty about why, but I would just say that in general, you know, I'm not talking about having like thousands of stocks here, but the more stocks you have in your portfolio, the more of a chance you have to have a stock that really drives your portfolio's returns. And so those stocks are rare. And so I wouldn't be afraid of going over 20 stocks. I mean, if you did a good job with your stock picks, that means all 20 of your stocks are probably really high and they could get really expensive. Mm -hmm. And going back to the value investing thing, you pay too much for a stock you're going to get killed by Mr. Market. So that's where looking for, is there another great opportunity somewhere else that can be really beneficial for you? When you talk about being somebody who's kind of doing it on the side though, it becomes problematic. So if you don't have resources like the e-letter, which we offer, or somebody else kind of helping you with managing an expanding portfolio can become difficult. And that's why you have so many people who do finance for a living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's a really interesting question. And I think some of the things that I think we could probably explore a little bit are so, for example, one of the things that, you know, Andrew and I both try to find the, the best investments we can. And sometimes depending on, so perfect example is I have in my portfolio, a few choice companies that are in the payment space. For example, because that's I've done a lot of work over the last year or so on that sector, and it's really fascinating to me. And I found some companies that I think in the long run are going to do really well. But over the last three or four months, they have all gotten hit 
pretty hard and they've fallen from their previous highs, air quote. And so one of the things that I have been doing is trying to allocate money to those companies to try to kind of continue the dollar cost averaging as a habit. But I'm also trying to lower my cost basis on those companies so that when they do rebound, I'm going to do really, really well, I think. (laughs) And it also I look at it as like I'm trying to get under wherever I think it's going to bottom out at. And if I can get under that and then it rebounds, then I will do really well on some of those companies. So for me, it's part of, I have a kind of a, an overall strategy where I'm looking at my overall portfolio. And if I had a thousand dollars a month to allocate to it, then I either look at, do I want to add, are there other opportunities that I want to add to the portfolio? In other words, buying new companies. Are there those or are there companies that I already own that I think are great companies, but now are getting beat up because the market is turned against them. It doesn't mean that the companies are bad or they're losing money or they're going bankrupt. It just means that Mr. Market has decided, hey, these groups of companies I don't like anymore and we're all going to get out of those and we're going to buy these instead. And at some point it'll turn and it'll go back to this and things will go back up. And so when I'm trying to consider what kinds of things I'm going to invest in, I will look at kind of the overall construction of the market. If I'm struggling to find things that I think are good investments, then I may choose to put more money into the particular companies. I also spend a fair amount of time looking at quarterly reports, trying to revalue the companies on a regular basis just to kind of see if anything's changed. And if I feel like a company you know, like PayPal, like I talked about earlier, is undervalued now, then maybe that would benefit me putting more money into that idea than it would trying to find another idea that I don't necessarily have the same conviction on uh, for whatever reason. And so that's, I mean, that's for me is one of the things that I guess I kind of look at. That's what helps me. I guess I'm curious if that's something you think, am I nuts or is that something that you kind of ascribe to? No, I don't think you're nuts at all. I think what we need to be careful of, and the reason I say this is Brett mentioned in the question about talking about 52-week high and 52-week low. And there's something that, trust me, like every investor runs into this, so don't feel bad about it. And especially if you have stocks that are going down in your portfolio, you can start to feel the same way too, even if you know that you shouldn't be thinking this. But there's a bias. It's like a behavioral bias. I think they call it anchoring. Mm -hmm. And so it's this idea that like, you look at a stock and you say, wow, it's down 50% from its high. That means it's cheap, you know? It's a steal. So I'm in the dollar cost average down. And then you're just, that's such a bad thing to do because you have to remember the stock market. While there is some of that moving around with Mr. Market, it is also about the fundamentals of the businesses underneath them. And so, you know, you take one of the meme stocks or one of the crazy growth stocks and they might have fallen 50%. A lot of those, fell another 50% and they could still continue the fall because one of the things about a stock that goes up potentially to infinity when investors are so crazy about it is that it can get so out of whack with what it's actually what the business is actually worth it could be down 50% from its high and it could go down again and it could go down again and it might sound like a crazy thing until you live through it but go throughout history. It's, it happens over and over and over again in so many sectors and so many stocks. And so we kind of just have to respect the history a little bit and understand that there is an anchoring bias. We're all going to be subject to it. And so when we do dollar cost average into whatever we think is the best value, make sure it's the best value because 
that's in relation to what the business is actually worth versus not because it's down 50% or 25%. So when I say what the business is worth, imagine if you had, let's say you're on desert island and you're starving, you could buy a pizza for $50 or you could buy a pizza for $10. Which one's cheaper? Well, it depends how many calories you're going to get. Right. If it's a loaded pizza with like hundreds of beautiful toppings and, you know, thousands of calories for $50, but then your other pizza option is little slices of like microscopic cheese. And we're only talking about a hundred calories. Well, on the desert island, that $50 is actually a better price because you're getting more for it. So that's what we mean when we say buying stocks that are cheap or good value compared to what they're worth. You're doing the exact same thing. But you're doing it in relation to instead of a metaphorical pizza, maybe it's a Domino's pizza, that company. How much are they making and how much is their stock price? Or maybe it's Target or another company like that. So you have to do some understanding of how big the business is, how much they're making in profits. And that helps you set what's a fair price for them in the stock market. Because over the long term, the market follows those values. Yeah, they absolutely do. Our friend Braden was on a few weeks ago, and that's one of the things that he was talking about is over the long term, the business fundamentals matter and they will tell over time. And that's why you see some of these wild fluctuations of certain companies. And you know, like Andrew was saying, sometimes the price gets way ahead of where the fundamental of the value of the company is, and the market will bring that back to air quote reality uh, at some point. And it doesn't mean that it's you know, a terrible company or that it's a bad investment, it may be a better investment at the lower price than it was at the sky high price, just because now it's more in line with the fundamentals. And if the company continues to perform as they should, growing their revenues, growing their the value of the company, then the value of the company in the market will grow as well. And those are some things that sometimes get disconnected with the ebbs and flows and the prices that we see. And I want to mention something about the anchoring bias. It's real. And the reason why I know this is uh, I worked in the restaurant business for a long time and I helped construct a lot of menus. And that is something that is taught in the restaurant business is to use anchoring to help drive sales of particular items on menus. And so sometimes if there's a product is a higher margin for the restaurant and they want to push it more, they may adjust the prices around that item to change the anchoring bias that people see. And it's really prevalent on wine lists. You'll sometimes see on wine lists, you'll see bottles of wine that may be selling for $500 to $1,000 a bottle. And the restaurant really has no realistic intention of selling those, they will at some point, but they understand it's not going to be a high mover. But when people look at that and they see that, you know, this is super, super expensive. And then they see something that's maybe $200. Well, now that doesn't seem as expensive compared to a $500 or $1,000 bottle of wine. And you can always tell a little pro tip here for anybody that's looking to buy a bottle of wine at a restaurant and they want to, I guess, impress people. If you look at the wine list and it's not in order of price, that's a restaurant that kind of has an idea of how anchoring bias works and what they're setting it up. When you see a restaurant that just lists all the bottles and by price, cheapest to most expensive, they have zero clue what they're doing. But if if you see the prices all mixed up together, that means that they're using anchoring bias because you're going to look at all these different things and go, oh, I really like Pinot Noirs and there's seven of them. 
one of them's 20 bucks. That's too cheap. But another one's 180 bucks. That's too expensive. Now I'll go for the $80 one or whatever. Then that will, you know, that drives up the margin of the restaurant because they're going to sell more bottles of the $80 versus the 180. But anyway, okay. So complete segue from investing, but something that kind of fits into my wheelhouse. So I kind of want to I wanted to talk about the kind of the anchoring bias and how it is a real, it is a real impact for sure. It is real. Yeah, it totally is. All right. So I think, you know, if if you're looking at creating your portfolio, it kind of goes to having a plan and then following the plan. And then when you get to wherever you are with your plan, then it also takes a little more maintenance to understand what you want to do with that portfolio going forward. and. You know, some people can buy a new stock every single month, like every single month. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but if you're comfortable staying in the 15 to 20, 25, 30, whatever parameter you're kind of setting for yourself, then you are also going to have to make a decision of how you want to allocate that money. And it also goes to how big do each of these positions become? So to keep it simple, if you have 20 stocks and ideal air quote allocation would be around 5% of each company. But as company A grows faster than company B, it's naturally going to become a bigger portion of your portfolio. And then you have to start making decisions on whether you want to reduce that allocation of the bigger company A, sell some of it, other in other words, to buy more of company B to even out the allocation. That's kind of what 401ks do when they rebalance is they take, you have a preset allocation, whatever that may be. And then when they rebalance, they sell parts of the ones that are doing well and they allocate to those, to the ones that have a lower allocation. So it brings it up. So if, if one ETF drops to 8% of your portfolio and it's supposed to be 10, then they'll sell the other ETF to bring, to allocate more money to the other one to bring it up to the 10%. Those are some of the decisions you have to make when you're allocating funds for a portfolio. I hope that let is. Me, a, let me take the seat of somebody who's like overwhelmed when you say that. How would right. you make that like really simple? How would I make that really simple? I think the easiest way that you could do that, you just have to try to find the companies that you think are going to have the best long term potential and allocate money to them. So when you're deciding every month, where do I want to put my thousand dollars? If you have 20 stocks and you think, you know, I really like these two or these three and put money in those. I think that's probably, you know, if you feel like Apple right now is maybe not as good of a potential as stocks B, C, and D, then put money in stocks B, C, and D. I think it really comes down to that. Yeah, that's how I do. That's how I do my money. That's how I recommend for subscribers mm-hmm. to do it as well. And, you know, nobody says you have to do it on your own. You can leverage other resources like the e letter to help mm-hmm. you with that if you're going to do it every month. Yeah, absolutely. That's totally correct. Okay. So move on to the last question here. Hi, Dave and Andrew. I just finished listening to all of your episodes. Thank you for this amazing resource. My question. I know Andrew is very anti-debt, so I wonder what he thinks of Lowe's and Home Depot's extremely high debt-to-equity ratios. From what I can tell, people generally agree these companies are strong choices for investment, but their debt scares me off from buying. Why is it so high compared to other retail? Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks. From Daniel in Atlanta. And Daniel, I've been asking myself this question for, <laughs> for months, months, months and months and months, and I don't know why they do it. 
it's just this the way that these companies are. Maybe they can get away with it. I don't know. They do seem really safe in the sense of like by all traditional metrics, they are safe companies. Like Moody's, you talked about Moody's a couple of weeks ago. They rate the debt until they basically try to determine how risky that debt is. And they give Home Depot, I think, like an A rating or it's a good solid rating. And so if these companies were to continue driving the kind of sales that they do and that they have for a long time, their debt shouldn't be a problem. It's just sometimes you can look at some companies and they can be a little bit more aggressive with their with how they're choosing to keep money in their business. So like Home Depot and Lowe's as another example, they don't keep much cash laying around. They have a lot of like, sh- sh- they don't keep a buffer for short-term stuff. So that's usually not a problem if if the markets are working healthy and, and there's a lot of liquidity and everything's running smoothly, that's never a problem. And that's probably the market majority of the time. So it really comes down to is the way that they're choosing to have so much debt and choosing to have... And it's not so much even like the debt itself. It's just they don't keep assets. So I don't want to get like super into the accounting, but basically they are very aggressive with buying back stock a lot more than some other companies are. And I'm a huge advocate of buybacks. I ha- most of my portfolio have stocks that do stock buybacks. I think it's a great way to give money back to shareholders. But they're very, very aggressive. Over the last 10 years, Lowe's has done it. They've reduced their shares outstanding by like 5% a year on average over those 10 years. To give you perspective, if a company reduces it by like 1%, that's considered pretty high. Mm-hmm. So try five times that and try it over a 10-year period. Home Depot, similar story, 4%. So they're just buying back a ton of shares. And you know, it's it's one of those things they probably don't see any competition around the horizon. So they don't feel like they need that money. So they buy it back and that makes the stock price go really high. And that's a big reason why, especially Home Depot, has done so well with their stock price is because they continue to buy back stock. So for me personally, I mean, I haven't pulled the trigger yet, obviously, on either of those companies. And a big part of that is because both in the short term with how much like cash they keep around in the books versus how much they have to pay on stuff. They don't keep a lot, especially compared to other retail, just like Daniel said. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason. The second reason is I don't know how sustainable these buybacks are. And for those reasons, I haven't pulled the trigger. And you really do have to take it on a case-by-case basis because I do have another stock in my portfolio that's very aggressive and they kind of a similar story. I just kind of see their revenues as more stable than in a worst case scenario, what a company like this could be. doesn't mean I'm right or wrong. It's just, it just kind of shows you where my comfort level is. Mm-hmm. It does. Okay. So I guess a couple of questions that kind of spring to mind when we're kind of discussing this. The first one is, can you explain a little bit, maybe from a high overview, when a company generates cash, when they have revenues and they, they have money that they can spend on things, what kinds of choices do they have as far as allocating that capital? So they can pay it as a dividend. They can pay back some of their debt. So if they have that debt, they want to pay some of that back. They can keep it and just have it sit inside the company just in case. They can buy another business or they can reinvest in the business. And so if you think about Home Depot as an example, they're basically just in the United States and pretty much anywhere you go, you're not going to have trouble finding Home Depot. I mean, they're everywhere. So in their case, they've tried to expand internationally. I can't remember if it was Canada or Mexico. They tried and it just failed horribly. They had to close some of that. And you're seeing that with a lot of retailers in the United States. So 
they kind of just don't have anywhere to grow to anymore. Something they've been investing in lately is inventory because everybody has heard about the supply chain shortages everywhere. So that's a good way to kind of invest in the short term to kind of stock up your shelves, make sure you can sell all the crazy demand that these home center retailers have seen. But longer term, bigger picture, it's like, well, they're not going to buy each other. I mean, they could. We'll see. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe there's not much places else for the money to go. That could be a thing. And, you know, you would be shocked. I think one of the things I was really shocked to learn as I started observing the stock market more is that you could have a company and it doesn't need to grow to become an Amazon to have like ridiculous stock returns. Like, as an example, the stock that's performed the best over the last 30 years, it was a certain 30 year period. It was Domino's Pizza, but their market cap is like 15 billion. So that's like really, really small. Mm-hmm. I mean, Amazon, Microsoft, their market cap's over a trillion. Mm-hmm. And Domino's is just really small, this 15 billion, because their business model is different. It's just, it doesn't need a lot of cash, but the stock price continues to go up because they keep buying back stock. So, Mm-hmm. WD4 is another good example. Like, yeah, really, really small company, and they just have kind of stayed in their lane, and that's done really well for them. Yeah. So, I think I don't see any problem with like some a company doing buybacks and doing lots of them. I think it's a very good thing for a company to do, just stay in their lane. I'd rather them do that than you know try to open stores somewhere where squander it and lose a bunch else. of money. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. So. There is something to be said for that, but there's also something to be said about like kind of keeping the cushion around. And so I, I generally lean towards companies that keep a cushion. I mean, I love companies that are debt free in general. So yeah. All right. So that kind of leads me to the next part of the question. So he asked about the high debt to equity ratios. And I guess without getting into the nitty gritty of that, could you kind of explain a little bit like what a debt to equity ratio is and maybe allude to a little bit what he's talking about here? Yeah, so that's it's all just accounting, right? And so it kind of goes back to what we're saying about what you can do with the money. We said how you can kind of you can spend it, you can invest it, or you can keep it. So cash is an asset. I think we can all agree on that. Yep. (laughs) And then you have expenses, liabilities. So that's on the other side. You have assets, you have liabilities. Whatever is left is your equity, similar to the way we have home equity on our homes. Mm -hmm. So Remember how we said the company wasn't keeping a lot of cash. They were spending it on buybacks and lots of it. So when you do that super, super aggressively, your equity goes down. You contrast that to a business, let's say like Microsoft, where they're building up a bunch of data centers Mm -hmm. to have a bigger reach so they can reach more cloud customers. Those data centers are assets. So instead of that cash maybe going to a buyback and going away from a balance sheet, it's added to the balance sheet and it's an asset and increases their equity. So that's kind of the difference where you'll see companies that buy back more. If they're very, very aggressive with it, they'll actually be shrinking their equity. And that's why you see the debt to equity go so high because the equity part is so low. That makes sense. So in essence, when you see something maybe that looks a little out of the norm for a particular company or even a sector, it probably behooves you to look a little deeper and try to uncover maybe why that is. Yeah, and I think it's a great question to ask. And the fact that rose red flags, I think, not to say that this is a bad situation, it's just you have to ask yourself, you know, what kind of companies do I want to invest in? And I think buybacks are good, and I think companies that stay in their lane are good. Mm -hmm. And these stocks have done really... I struggle with like 
how to talk about this because they've been great stocks, you know, and I've been looking at them for a long time because they're great businesses. I mean, Home Depot is like the Costco of home improvement retail, you know, so they're great businesses and they could conceivably do this for five, 10, 20 years still. Mm -hmm. We'll see. It's just, I don't know, something that Buffett said that I came across recently. He said, one of the things that I do is I try to reduce catastrophic risk. And I think some of the turbulence we've seen lately kind of underscores some of that with some of the geopolitical risk. And this is just one form of that. So you have to ask yourself, is that a risk you're happy taking or not? I think their businesses will be fine. I just don't know how sustainable 5% and 4% of shares outstanding every year. Those are huge buybacks. I don't, yeah, I don't know are, how sustainable that is. Yeah, those are definitely big boy numbers. And I think what you said there at the end is really kind of the key of the whole idea. Whenever you're analyzing any kind of stock is thinking about what are you comfortable investing in and what are you comfortable? It, it kind of goes back to some of what Buffett and Munker have said in the past. What are you comfortable buying today that will allow you to sleep tonight and not lay in and worry about it? And, you know, thinking about some of the geopolitical risk or any sort of risk that, you know, nobody saw COVID coming and how could we? And look at all the chaos that that has wrought over the last few years and nobody could have predicted that. And so having companies that could withstand that, that's a whole other conversation, but having companies that could withstand that, that you could still go to bed and not, you know, stress about, I think is really the key to investing. Everybody wants to criticize Buffett for having too much cash on his balance sheet. And then he goes and outperforms and now all of a sudden he's everybody's, you know, hero again. Right. And he just, it's like as predictable as the market cycles. Like, right. oh, you should use that cash. Oh, he's got a great cash cushion. He's the best. Mm-hmm. Like you get both sides of that. And yeah. I think if Buffett does it, there's something to be learned about having a little more of a conservative approach to a business. Yeah, for sure. In argument's sake, you know, he is probably one of the better stock pickers ever. So, <laughs> you know, probably, you know, listening to what he says or observing what he does is, you know, not a bad way to go. Yep. All right, folks. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation today. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversations on dollar cost averaging and the great question about Home Depot and Lowe's. I wanted to thank everybody for taking the time to write us those fantastic questions. A little side note, if you have any questions about anything that we talked about today, for those of you that are not familiar with this, we have a website called einvestingforbeginners.com where we have all kinds of great resources to help you learn more about investing, the stock market, budgeting, lots of great stuff. We have a search bar on there. So if there's something like, if you have no idea what debt to equity is and you really want to learn more about it, there's lots of great articles about debt, debt to equity. Just hit the search bar, type it in, and you'll get all kinds of resources to look all that stuff up. So that's there for you to to help you learn more about investing because that's what we're all here to do. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety. Emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.